All right. Um, so hopefully you got a packet when you came in. Um, for if any of you are new, which I know there are some new faces in here, so um, basically what we do on Wednesday night is um, we kind of tend to think of Wednesday night and building blocks uh, as kind of an educational time. And so basically what my goal is to do in both of those times, building blocks and on Wednesday night, is um, really just education. And so we're, we've done, in here on Wednesday night, we've done systematic theology, we've done study through the Old Testament, just kind of laying out the timeline of the Old Testament. We've done a whole host of things. And over the last roughly 26 or so weeks, we've been doing two different studies. One, uh, the first one was defining what it means to be a part of a church. And so we did 13 weeks on a series called Church Define. I would recommend you to listen to it. Um, I require it for anybody that's coming forward in membership. And it's 13 weeks. You can find it on our website or on our podcast. And, and basically, it's kind of unpacking what it means to be a member of a church and what the church's purpose is and why we do some of the things that we do. And then the second uh, thing that we're in now is Salvation Define, where we've now begun to kind of understand what does it mean that we're actually saved. When we say, I am saved, or when we say, I, you know, I believe in Jesus, or I want to follow Jesus, or whatever, what is it that we're saying has happened to us? What is the, the, you know, the nitty-gritty, the down to the details and the gears and the mechanics that God has described for us in His Word that's actually happening when we're saved? And so we've been unpacking that over the last, um, oh, this is week 11 here. And so we've kind of gone through uh, several steps along the way. So I'm going to just roughly, quickly retrace some of those steps if you'll just bear with me for a minute. What we started with was where we begin the whole process and that we're condemned from the beginning and, and condemned before we ever make a decision. We're condemned because we're Adam's children. Adam sinned in the garden and Paul tells us, in Adam all die, meaning that Adam was given the penalty of death and all of humanity was given that same penalty. Basically, God's saying, you're all guilty because Adam has poison the stream, so to speak. There's no molecule of water that can be spared out of that. Adam has poisoned the stream. And so all of us are guilty. And because all of us are guilty, then when we're born, we don't have to teach our kids to hit each other and to steal and to be greedy. They, are, they have that knowledge from the womb, practically, and they know how to be selfish and they know how to do all those things. We sin because we are corrupted from the beginning. And so that leads, obviously, to a life of corruption. And so um, what we can say about salvation is that I was saved, that there was a time in history, in eternity past, really, when God chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us to adoption as sons. It says that in Ephesians 1, and He basically tells us that, that God from eternity past has set His loving affection on His children. That seems readily apparent in the Scriptures. Not only that, but also in the past, before I was ever born, Christ came to the earth in flesh and died for me. He went to the cross. The wrath of God was poured out on His shoulders. What that means is that God was angry for my sin. And instead of punishing me for eternity, He punished Christ. 
All of that happened before I was even born. Christ was punished for my sin before I was ever born. All of my sin, past, present, and future. Since all of my sin was in the future at the time, it was all future sin that he died for. And if you just think about that for a minute, God, Christ rather, satisfying the wrath of God for me 2,000 years before I was ever even thought about a twinkle in my parents' eye, I have to say, I was saved, and I was saved by an act of God, God alone. But then in real time, there is also something that has happened. I was born, right? 1983 for me, for many of you, different years, don't laugh. Yes, it was 1983, but I am getting older by the minute, okay? Not quite 40, but I'm getting there. Um, so I was born in 1983, and then there was a point at some time later when I began hearing the gospel, and I began to understand the gospel. I responded, didn't I? Of course I did. I, I actually, in, in the church that I was in at the time, um, went down front, and which we'll talk about in a couple weeks, but I went down front, and I told the pastor I wanted to be baptized, and and, you know, sometime later, uh, October something or another, 1991, I was baptized at Northside Baptist Church in Corsicana, Texas. So that happened, right? But what is that? Well, how do I understand that? How did I come to understand the gospel? And what we did was sort of showed the different layers that are there in Scripture to talk about how we actually come to salvation. And the first thing that happens is a new birth process. There's, uh, you're born again. And contrary to what some people want to tell you, that being born again is you're, you made a decision. No, no, no. There's something that happens long before that where God actually opens the eyes of His children to the gospel, where they hear and they believe and they respond in faith. And what we said about that is that new birth, this second point here, our new birth is monergistic. And what that means is that God works alone in that. He is the only one that can open uh, the eyes, that can revive a dead heart. We are described in Ephesians 2, 1 to 10, as dead in our trespasses and sins. Not needing help, not needing a life preserver, not he's going to throw it out there, if only we will reach out. That's not how it's described. It is described as dead in our trespasses and sins. And God takes us from the bottom of the ocean, breathes the breath of life into us, which we call new birth. He does that alone. And then after that, our response to that is to wake up. And we wake up by proclaiming Christ as Lord. Uh, that is waking up into new creation life. And so that convert that effectual call is irresistible because we were dead and he woke us up so there was no resisting that and we come to faith and then conversion is what takes place when we consciously say i believe this i repent of my sin we call that conversion and that takes place in the life of every believer every person who is born again they come to that moment of conversion you will find lots of people who will come to the moment of saying, I believe, I repent of my sins, who have never been actually born again, but who are 
well, we might just, to put a fine point on it, faking it, right? What you see is that there are people that will sometimes gather in the church and they'll see the response of Christians on their left and on their right, repenting of sins and going through these motions of singing these songs and praying and doing those kinds of things. And they have learned to repeat those rhythms and give very much the impression that they are believers, but they've never actually been born again. And what you see over time is what John, the Apostle John says, they went out of us, but they were not from us. If they would have been from us, they would still be with us. <laughs> Meaning, they ditched Christ, and the reason they ditched Christ is they were not one of us. They weren't born again. But they were do- going through the motions. We see this in Demas and several other people in the New Testament as well give a good example of that. Um, so then, we, uh, over the last few weeks, we've talked about the intricacies of justification by grace through faith, that that's how the sinner is justified. Faith is also the God's grace to him in salvation, and the faith that it takes to believe are all gifts of God. It, it, Paul even says these, these two things, are not of your own doing. They are gifts of God um, that are given to you, grace and faith. And it's, the faith is the instrument that God uses in us to respond positively to His grace and be saved. And at the moment of our response in faith, we are justified, meaning in the courtroom of God, we are declared there, finally acquitted of all charges. The death of Christ has already taken place. The, the payment has been made. But the court date still has to, be, has to be had, right? So that moment where you say, I believe, I repent, that by, by responding in faith, the, the gavel pounds and you're acquitted on all charges because of the blood of Christ. And so then the, the sinner who is now believing by grace through faith is now engaging in a process called sanctification. It's a long uh, process that we are not finished with on this side of glory, but it's a process where we continue day in and day out to understand more of what sin is, more of how to battle sin, and more of how to put a... Put a stake in it. Drive a stake through the heart of sin. And that is an ongoing process, and it's really ugly. A lot of times, just let's just be honest, it's really ugly. Not, not mine, it's dealing with everybody else's, right? You know, that's the problem. It's everybody else's sin is the real ugly ones, you know. But it's a real ugly process of dealing with sin and understanding where that is, and often it hides in really, you know, just crazy nooks and crannies of the heart, doesn't it? And you don't even know it's there until you get married one day, and you're like, huh, look at that. I was actually really pretty selfish. Good thing I'm not anymore. And then you have a kid. (laughs) And then you're like, oh, so two sinners who were selfish independently got together and just became selfish together, right? (laughs) So you learned how to be selfish together, which is crazy. And then when you had a kid, you were like, now we don't get anything to ourselves anymore? Uh, and the answer is, no, you don't. Uh, so you have to deal with that. Um, <laughs> congratulations. But you start to realize selfishness. A lot of these things happen in our life. God brings along these trials and these little different things along the way. They could be even really good things. Maybe prosperity brings along tons of money. 
and your uncle dies and leaves you trillions of dollars in the bank, and you're like, woohoo, I've got lots of money, and then all of a sudden you're buying tortoiseshell beds and you know, all kinds of other things because your greed is just overflowing. And you realize maybe if God is kind to you, you go, oh, I was actually super greedy and didn't realize it. Uh, there's a fantastic book that I would recommend to you. I'm still in the middle of it, but I can go ahead and recommend it because of how it's gone so far. Uh, <laughs> it's 400 years old almost, so it's by Thomas Watson. Um, and it's called All Things for Good. I think every Christian should read this book. All Things for Good, Thomas Watson. It is, you can get it on, um, on Banner of Truth's website in the little Puritan paperbacks is what they're called. It's a series of little, and it's probably 130 pages. It is, and it's, it's small. Not a quick read, but it's, not, it's also not like a lot of these and thous and things like that. I think they've kind of cleaned up a lot of that language. But basically, he takes Romans 8, 28, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. He takes that verse, and he writes on it for 130 pages. And it is phenomenal. I'm telling you, everything in there is worth its weight in gold. And he describes every trial, every possible scenario you ever engage in in your life, and how God for his children, uses all of those things. Trials, good things, bad things, every little thing for good. Those who love God and are called according to his purpose. I would highly recommend that to you. Um, but essentially, that's the process of sanctification that we're all engaged in. And so, those who are regenerated, who are effectually called by God um, and to a state of grace can neither totally nor finally fall away from that state of grace. In other words, He is going to bring us to the point of perseverance. That is the process that He is in. Those whom He has set His affection on, who He has given new birth, that He has brought to conversion and, and life, He is going to bring all the way through the end. They, are, they can... They will never totally and finally fall away from Christ. They may have seasons that look real ugly, but they will never totally and finally fall away, but will continue in God's sanctifying grace to the end and be eternally saved. Um, now, some will run away, and the answer is because they were never saved to begin with. Now, tonight, we're going to talk about, and I, I, I think this is going to go relatively quickly. We'll see. Uh, that's not true. You know it's not true. Um, and and tonight's, tonight's topic is really glorification. What is glorification? When we reach the end, what, what does that actually look like? And you, sometimes I, would, I, I think every time I've ever taught on this and really got down into the details of, of what happens when we die, I, I nearly always find someone that goes, I never realized that. So, I, I teach on it fairly regularly just because of that. I typically find someone who, who really needs that, and that's great. Um, but some of this may be an old hat for you, and that's okay. If you're like, I, I kind of knew a lot of this, and that's fine, but I still want to get down into the details, and, and let's iron them out. And, and we're going to get really specific, okay? So, some of this you're going to be like, I, I, I got that. I, I knew that one. That one's pretty obvious, but that's okay. Um, in most places, the Bible speaks of the death of humans, that is physical death, 
um, as the decay of the body, and it's distinguished from that of the soul. Okay, so we want to just understand that first and foremost, that typically in the Bible, physical death is spoken of as the, the physical death of the body itself, apart from death of the soul. Um, it's also represented, sometimes you'll see it, as a separation of body and soul. So when we describe someone as dying, the connotation there in Scripture, the meaning there in Scripture, which you'll see here in just a second, is a separation of body and soul that takes place. And that marks the end of the, our, our present physical existence here on earth. Okay, um, Let's look at a few of these verses. I'm going to warn you, uh, when I, so, uh, some of these verses are going to be repeated. There's a lot of verses in this packet. All right. Some of the verses are repeated, and when they're repeated, they just kind of stay in the original location. They don't, they, they don't duplicate. Um, that's not my doing. It's the software that I use. So uh, some of this I might need help on finding where it's at. But here you go. Uh, the beginning. Do not fear. I'm just going to give you a sense of this. Do not fear those who, can, who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. See the difference there? Jesus is, is pulling apart those two things, body and soul, and giving some indication the body death is not the soul death, right? Um, Luke 12, 4, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and have nothing more than that, more that they can do. Um, 1 Peter 3, 14 to 18. But, if, but even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good uh, if that should be God's will, then for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. So you even have um, what is sometimes controversial uh, amongst some groups, uh, the spirit-soul Distinction, which I don't think there is a spirit-soul distinction. I think there, he's talking about the same thing there, but um, I think this is one evidence for that, is Peter uses that word spirit when we obviously know in other places it's uh, soul. When Jesus even uses soul in the previous passage. Okay, so uh, you get the, the idea that there is a distinction between body and soul, and the death of the body it does not mean the death of the soul. There's more that actually happens to the soul after the body actually dies. And death, you might even define as that separation between body and soul, where before they were united and now they are uh, distinct. Um, you see this time and again, Ecclesiastes, several others, dust re, uh, and the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. So we even get a sense of where that, what happens to that spirit as, as a result. We're going to talk more about that in just a second. Um, now, the second part of this is you, you understand that it's not consistent with the history of Christian teaching that, um, that we understand ever God annihilating anything or anyone. That 
doesn't seem to be anywhere taught in Scripture, you will find, it doesn't mean, let me, I want to say just a second on this, just as an aside. There are, there are plenty of very good Christian teachers who do believe in the annihilation of the wicked, the just total annihilation of the wicked. And that one that I revere, I, I, a lot of things he's written are so good and are worth reading. John Stott is his name, believed in the annihilation of the wicked. And um, I think he was wrong on that, okay? And we can be wrong sometimes and, not, and still be Christians, all right? <laughs> I hope. <laughs> no, well, he, if he were standing here, he's dead, so he can't respond at all. So I guess he knows now that he was wrong. What? Annihilation would mean that uh, someone dies and they're, if they're the wicked, they're, in other words, instead of an eternity in hell, they are poof, gone. Never to exist again. But, and, and they would certainly point to various verses and things like that that, look, are, I'm, I'm not even going to point to the verse because they're not really not convincing. And you're going to go, that doesn't say that. Uh, and I know that. And so we're not going to spend our time there. But they would say that these kind of give an indication instead of the, where we would normally go is weeping and gnashing of teeth. There, you know. Uh, it seems like everlasting torment is what Jesus describes it as, um, that would seem to say, no, there is a hell, and the wicked do go there, a lake of fire, things like that. And he would say, uh, he would say about those things, no, that's, a, that's an annihilation point. So, but the point is, what I'm saying is, that there is the evidence for that in Scripture is really very scant at best, and everything is pointing to the contrary, so, uh, and, and that's never been a very consistent teaching at all in Christian history. Um, so, some sects will represent the wicked as, as being annihilated, but God, it seems, even in the story of Scripture as a whole, doesn't annihilate anything in His creation. But what we do see is that death is, is not really a cessation of existence, but a severance of of the natural sort of relations of life that we would normally engage in. And it is a separation between body and soul. So just as you might describe it as the flesh begins to decay in the grave, that's one way to describe death, uh, probably a, even a more consistently biblical way of describing it is the soul is separated from the body. And the body goes into the grave and decays. All right. So we also have to remember about death if we just can agree on this for just a second, that death is an expression of divine anger, it's a judgment, it's a condemnation, it's a curse, and it's a direct punishment for man's sin. Here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that that person in the casket sinned grievously, and that's the reason they're in that casket. That may be the case for some, but that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, the sin of mankind brought about death as even a possibility or a reality, right? You understand that? And so because of the sin of mankind and because we're all guilty of that, death now becomes a reality for all of us. So we're living under that punishment. And it, it is defined as a punishment. So I don't want to hear that any, if, you ever, if you, any of you ever stand up and give something at a funeral, all right? 
Don't get up there and say, we're not mourning. This isn't sad. This is a celebration. Just please stop that now. All right? The Bible is very clear that death is robbed of its victory when Christ returns. In the meantime, death does have a sting, and the sting of sin is death. What, what sting does sin have? You know, you sin and you just, like, well, you just run off from your mom and, you know, you, I'm sorry for hitting you or whatever, you know, like my kids do. They just kind of begrudgingly say, I'm sorry, will you forgive me? And then they run off and it's no big deal. There's no sting there of the sin. What's the sting of sin? Death. So that casket is a tremendous sting. It's supposed to hurt. You're supposed to feel it. And you're supposed to be reminded that that right there is an example. This is a, a it's supernatural what's happening. It's not even, not even just unnatural. It is supernatural. This is something God brought to humanity because of man's sin as a punishment. You understand? You tracking with me? So we got to think biblically about these things. Okay. So it's a, it's a punishment for man's sin. Uh, and we can see that. Look at uh, Psalm 90, uh, verse 7. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? Um, let's see. Romans 1.32 Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, deserve to die. Later, he's going to say, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So he's kind of lumping everybody into that. Deserve to die. Romans 5.16, the free gift is not like the, res the result of the one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. The condemnation of death is meant for you to feel it as a judgment. So I don't ever want to get up there at a funeral... And, and certainly, we don't grieve as those who have no hope, all right? Right? That's also there. So, we, we don't grieve as those who have no hope. We can look at a casket, and we can say, but I do have hope, and there is joy, I know. But you remember, that joy is in faith. We are in faith, with eyes of faith, looking to a horizon that is not yet there, right? That, that's what we're doing when we grieve as those who, as, not as those who have no hope. But, but So at a funeral, I want to un help us understand, look, this casket is meant for us to feel this, right? And it should. Okay, so, um, so while the body dies and decays, the immortality of the soul, the immortality of the soul has been a firm conviction of the church throughout history. And, and, and what that means, look, history is not our, our teacher. The Bible is our teacher, yeah? What history does is helps us understand whether or not we're interpreting the Bible correctly, right? If we're out here and all of Christian history is right here, guess who's wrong? We are, right? So throughout church history, what we see is a firm conviction of the church is the immortality of the soul. Now, it's true that 1 Timothy uh, 6, 15-16 says, um, which he will display in the proper time, 
He who is blessed the, and, and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Although it's true that eternality or immortality is ascribed only to God, we also see that what God has done in giving us a soul, that verse then means that He has imparted uh, some aspects of Himself to us in some respects. Okay? Uh, we're certainly not immortal the same way God is. We, res- we were created. We are a creature. But it, it is apparent that the human soul, he, he has made this way. So things like... Uh, we see in several different... I've got little headings here just to kind of help break down some of these passages so we can see what is intended to be said there. The first is you see the immortality of the soul in the doctrine of Sheol. He says, Psalm 16.10, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. Uh, which is obviously a very messianic psalm. Psalm 49.14-15, to uh, Like sheep, they are appointed for Sheol. Death shall be their shepherd. He's talking about the unrighteous. And the upright shall rule over them in the morning. Their form shall be, consu- their form shall be consumed in Sheol with no place to dwell. But God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me. So the more we read the rest of the Bible, what we see is it's not necessarily that our souls are inherently immortal, but that God in His immortality spares our soul in perpetuity. Does that make sense? Uh, okay. uh, <laughs> no, no, no. Uh, <laughs> let me think of what I just said. Um, so it's not that our soul has immortality, that we can go around saying, we, we, we have an aspect of ourselves that's immortal. It's that God in His immortality spares our soul in perpetuity. That's how he operates. Does that make sense? So if that's a better way to think of that, maybe. Um, if it's not a better way to think about it, just forget it. Just throw it out. <laughs> um, so, but you see this other times. Uh, there's the resurrection of the dead presented in, uh, in the Old Testament. And so you look at Exodus 3, 6, and he says, And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Pause right there. Now, you may be read that, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, of Jacob. That doesn't talk about the resurrection of the dead. Until Jesus came along, he said, it actually does talk about the resurrection of the dead, right? Look at the very next one, Matthew 22, 32. Jesus says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and uh, the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. So Jesus is telling the Sadducees who don't believe in the resurrection of the dead, you should because your Old Testament even tells you that there's a resurrection of the dead. Because remember what God told to Moses in the burning bush, I am the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. He's not, he, it's not he was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He still is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And you are wrong, is what he tells them in the next verse. Uh, so he's saying that there is a resurrection of the dead. Um, so we see this time and again on through these scriptures. You will see uh, we've got, there can be hundreds of them there, uh, that, are, that are telling you essentially that very same thing, that there is a resurrection and that there is an immortality in the soul. Now, I think it's important to lay those things out because I want to help us just step by step 
walk through what happens when we die. And if you just put this together, what you'll see is that it, you can kind of start to make sense of it. The Bible teaches that um, the soul of the believer, when it's separated in, from the body, enters into the presence of Christ. When the believer's soul, we're talking about believers now, redeemed, let's put it that way, the redeemed, when, they're, when they die, when, when their soul is separated from their body, their soul enters into the presence of Christ immediately. All right? So it's a disembodied state, meaning they don't have a body. Their soul is there. They don't have a brain. It's rotten in the grave. And they're alive with Christ in heaven. Okay? So we see this. Uh, and not only that, and even though that's, that seems a little weird to us, a disembodied state, what is that like? I couldn't even begin to tell you. But even though that seems a little weird to us, we're also told in Scripture that that is better even than what we have now. I like high-fiving people. I assume, I don't know, but I assume that when we're disembodied souls in heaven, there's not going to be any high-fives. I don't know, maybe I'm wrong about that, but that's what it seems like, right? That's what we're talking about, just to kind of, so we're clear, all right? But we're immediately in the presence of Christ, and that is said to be even far better. So like, so let's take, for instance, let me get through some of these, and this is where I may need help finding the ones that I'm missing. Um, 2 Corinthians, where, let, me, let me find one, 2 Corinthians 5, 6 to 9. Yep, middle, uh, bottom, bottom third of page 5. 2 Corinthians 5, 6 to 9. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. All right? Okay, that's, that's interesting. What about Philippians 1.23? Anybody got that one? Page 3. Philippians, middle of page 3. I am hard-pressed between the two. My, and he's talking about life or death. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. All right? Hebrews 12, 23, page 5 all the way down. And to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. When the roll is called up yonder, right? You'll be there. Revelation 6, 9, just under that. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness that they had borne. Um, the next one, 14, 13. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this, blessed are those uh, are, are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors for their deeds. Follow them. Uh, Revelation 20, verse 4, And I saw the thrones, and those seated on them were those whom the authority, to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the, the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God. 
And those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands, they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So you, you see there's a, there, there is a uh, disembodied state that is in the presence of Christ that Paul says that's far better. All right? That's not the best. That's far better. That's a, that's a medium. Let's put it at a medium. We'll see the, the best here in just a second. All right? So, um, that's away with the Lord. So, body goes into the grave and begins to decay. Soul goes to be with the Lord. When the redeemed... Now, let's go to the next one. When the redeemed die, the soul departs... Uh, yeah, when the redeemed die, the soul departs the body to be with the Lord in a place referred to in Scripture as paradise, or you'll, you'll hear it recalled, uh, called heaven sometimes. Um, although the Bible sheds very little light on what happens to the souls of the unredeemed after death, but prior to final judgment, Scripture seems to point to a first death in hell, or sometimes Hades is what it's called. Now, you don't find tons in the Bible talking about this very thing. Um, certainly etern eternal punishment and things like that, yes, but you know that, that little, that, what, what do you want to call that? That state in between a person dying and Jesus returning, right? In between that period of time, um, the person that, that is, is unredeemed, what happens to them? It seems to point to hell or Hades as the term for it. Luke uh, 23, 43. Uh, you got me, Andrew? Page 4, page 4. All right. Luke 23, 43, down at the bottom, under survival of soul. And he said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Okay, that's the initial, that's the save. Um, let's look at uh, Luke 16, 22 to 24. Page 6, uh, toward the top, a third of the way down, Luke 16, 22 to 24. This is the poor man, and uh, Lazarus, and the rich man. Lazarus, the poor man, died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's side. That's another phrase that is used really here uh, for uh, heaven, paradise. I think it's referring to the same thing. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, or hell, being in torment... He lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off. Now, Jesus hasn't returned yet in this parable, and you know that because what he's about to say in verse 24. He called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the, the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I'm in, anguish the flame, uh, 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 in the anguish in this flame. And then he goes on to ask him to send Lazarus to go talk to his sons. And he says, look, if, if, he didn't, if they don't listen to the prophets in the Old Testament, they're not going to listen to Lazarus. Okay. So, yeah, this was a soul in Hades. A disembodied soul, it appears to be in, in Hades. So, hell or Hades. So, we have, it, and we don't have tons. Like I say, we, there's not a, a ton of that. Second Peter 2, 9 is also one. It's on, the, it's on page 6 in the top third, just above that passage. Then the Lord knows how to escape how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. So there again, he, he refers, I mean, these, these are, you know, a couple of really the few verses that talk about that little, that, that window between 
our death and when Christ returns finally. Yes. 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 So what we're what we're seeing, and we're going to say, I'm going to say this explicitly in just a minute. These are temporary states, okay? Because we're waiting judgment, but these are holding, holding cells, as it were, and the holding cell for the righteous, the redeemed, is a glorious state, even better than the one we're in now, and the one for the unredeemed is. Not that. Yeah. Yeah, that in Ephesians isn't even talking about that. But yeah. Yeah. What does that mean? Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk about it in just a second. We're getting there. I know you're always a step ahead of me, Miss Millie. Um, all right. So the Bible, notice this, that the Bible nowhere teaches the doctrine of soul sleep. You'll hear this from time to time. Prosperity gospels are really, uh, gospel preachers are really fond of this, this idea. The Bible nowhere teaches the doctrine of soul sleep, which states that after death the soul continues to exist as an individual spiritual being, but in a state of unconscious rest, where it's just sort of like, where basically you go to, you die, and then the next thing you know, Christ is coming back to judge. And you went into this little, you went into your hyperbaric chamber, and you lost track of time, and there, and there he is. So it, it, we don't see that really anywhere. And then, of course, everybody has their little verses and things like that. But anyway, I don't. I haven't pieced that one together yet. Yeah, I haven't. Um, all right. While the disembodied state of the believer is is in heaven, in heaven is preferred over his existence. That's what Paul tells us. Than in the sinful world, final salvation. We know that that's only temporary. That that time in heaven is only temporary. Final salvation will come in the form of a physical or bodily resurrection of the dead, where our dead bodies will be made like Jesus' resurrected body. So high fives are restored. That's what we're talking about, all right? Make sense? Yes. Okay. Yes. Uh, high fives are restored. So... That physical resurrection of the dead, it, and, and so if you, if you just track with what's being said here, it will hopefully help make sense of a lot of scriptures. Um, 1 Corinthians 15, 20, page 6, is up in the upper third, just under the Luke passage. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, and listen to what he says here, the first fruits 
of those who have fallen asleep. The fallen asleep part, that's where some of the soul sleep stuff comes from. Okay, but what, they're say, what, what he's saying here is, of those who have fallen asleep, meaning that their, their dead body is in the grave and has not been woken up yet. Their soul is with the Lord immediately. It departed and went with the Lord. Their body has not woken up yet. Christ is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Meaning, what's happening next? That means he's the first of a long line of people who are going to do the same thing. Okay? That's what Paul is saying. And through 1 Corinthians 15, Paul is making that argument. We've taken one verse. But, um, and then again in, 15, in 23, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Um, let's, let's see here. Uh, how about, uh, let me find the one that I was really wanting to do. Romans 8.11, bottom third of page six. Page six. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. So what is he saying there? He's saying just exactly what happened to Jesus is going to happen to you. It might be a lot longer than three days and three nights, but that same process is going to happen to you, okay? Understand what he's tracking down. You can track down all these scriptures. They're here for you. You can read them. Um, all right. So it's not going to be, what we should not expect, is that resurrection of the dead is some entirely new creation in the sense that, like, here's a new body that's made out of nowhere. He says, let there be a body, and there comes a body out of nothing like he did in the beginning. Um, that's not what we're looking at, but a body that will be transformed from the present body that will be deposited in the earth upon physical death. Now, 1 Corinthians 15 makes this whole argument, but it is very complex, and, it, and I didn't want to read all of that tonight. But you can track down 1 Corinthians 15 later on if you would like. 1 Corinthians 15, 53, I'll say, For this perishable body must put on the imperishable. And this mortal body must put on immortality. You understand what he's saying there? Just as Christ rose from the dead bodily. So, in other words, if you were to go to the tomb where Christ was laid, let's say you knew where it was, you found it, and you were to, maybe there's still a stone there, or a McDonald's, or whatever there is now, and you were to roll that away, and you were to look in that tomb, and what would you find there? Would you find the bones of Jesus? No. For Christians, bones are a bad thing, all right? The bones of Jesus, it's a bad thing. We don't believe that. We believe that Jesus got up bodily. Clearly different, right? Clearly different. He had been beaten mercilessly. He had been crucified to the point that it killed him. And now, three days later, he's running marathons and walking through doors, all right? Okay, so different, yes but also has some similar characteristics. First of all, they recognize him. Second of all, he's got marks on his hands. He's got a, in his side for Thomas, right? So he's got some marks that identify him that they go, yep, that is Jesus. Oh my goodness, that's Jesus. He's, he's resurrected. So what we're expecting then is that the body that was deposited in the earth, that was separated from the soul, is going to be reunited again, I think this is what Job is talking about. I will see him in the flesh. Like, this is not going to be the end of it. High fives are going to be restored, but I'm going to high five with this hand, and it's not going to hurt whenever I give a high five, right? Yeah? Okay. 
All right, we're, on, we're tracking. We're on the same page. Okay, but it's good, so it's going to be transformed. The fi- this final salvation, or what we call glorification, will take place upon the second and final return of Christ. Um, this, I should say, that I, I poorly phrased that, I'm sorry. Upon the return of Christ, which is the once and final return. Okay, He's been once, he's coming back a second time. The second coming, a final return of Christ, is what I meant to say. The wicked will also be raised and thrown into the lake of fire for all eternity, while the righteous will dwell forever in a newly resurrected earth. Now, tons of scriptures here for that, but I'm just going to read just a couple here. Um, let's see. Uh, how about um, Daniel 12.2? That'll make the, that'll make the um, page four. Sorry about the disjointedness, guys. Page four? Oh, I got it. Yeah, yeah. Just above immortality of the soul, fellowship with God. Okay. And many of those who fall, who, who uh, many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall wake, shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. All right. So there's going to be it's the resurrection that he's talking about there. Several others, um, but let's go to Second uh, Peter three, thirteen, which should be on the very back, very last page, page seven. But according to his promise, we are waiting for, a, for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Revelation 21, 21, 21, 1. Then I saw a new heaven and new earth, for the first heaven and first, first earth passed away. I think, simi- I think that's similar to how our bodies, we say, pass away. The sea was no more. So I think here we look at a, sort of a resurrected earth. Sin is removed. The curse of sin is removed from the earth. The earth is restored. We live in a bodily state for all eternity on earth with each other. High fives restored forever. Eternity in bliss. And we can, but we can high five too, right? Yeah. Yeah. One page. I know that's complex, but here's, the, here's, I think, the best way to think about it. Look at what Christ did. Cross, he died. Turned to the thief and said, today you'll be with me in paradise. His body went into the grave. Today he went into the grave. Well, but his soul went to be with the Lord, right? Okay. What happened three days later? Body and soul came back together. He walked out of the grave. Yeah? That same thing is going to happen to you. So it's right to say, I have been saved. We talked about that. It's right to say, I am being saved, meaning I'm going through sanctification. I I came to know Christ. I repented of sin. I'm growing in sanctification. It's also right, and it's not complete until we say, I will be saved in the future, meaning none of this matters unless this happens. You understand? This is still the outstanding promise of Scripture that's left for, uh, for God to fulfill is not only judgment of the wicked thrown into the lake of fire, as it says in Revelation, and death and Hades and devil and Satan, the false prophet and, and the beast, all the, thrown into the lake of fire as well, judgment for them, and eternal felicity for the redeemed. Questions? Briefly? Sean. 
No. So La- Lazarus was resurrected um, to die again. That was a miracle that was not like Christ's resurrection. Um, Christ's resurrection is like some of the other resurrections we actually do see in Matthew. If you pay attention, at the very end of Matthew, Jesus dies, and then it says, and after his resurrection, others were resurrected too, appeared to many people, and then that was, that was it. That is that resurrection that he's talking about. So, yeah. But other resurrections, Elijah raising the, ki- the widow's son, uh, uh, Lazarus, those are miracles meant to demonstrate Christ is Messiah, is true, but Lazarus died again. Yes. I would have to say yes because Scripture says to be away from the body is to be present with the Lord. So my only way of saying that is Paul says yes, but what happened there is a divine miracle where Jesus is going, I'm the resurrection of life, watch this, and that only happened to Lazarus and like two other people in Scripture, and that was it, right? I don't know if it was really two other people, but you get the idea. It wasn't many. That is not what we're talking about here. That is a different thing. Lazarus died again. Other questions? Go ahead, David. That the rich man was? Yeah. yeah. Yes. Yes. Um, John in Revelation 20 calls that the first death. And if you ha- experience the first death, you're going to experience the second death. John also says, if you experience, after the first, everybody dies the first death. If you experience life after that, then you, the second death isn't going to touch you. The lake of fire isn't going to touch you. So, yes, that's an intermediate state. Intermediate is not the right word, but a temporary state. Yeah. Right. Correct. Right. Yeah, and part of the reason for that is because when we say we're saved, if we run away from Christ, what does that mean? If I go to hell, what was this? Well, this was nothing. Salvation, if we really define it, we properly define it, means absolutely nothing if after I die, I go to hell, right? So you can't say, I'm saved, run away, and then run away from Christ. That doesn't make any sense, because if after you die, you're in hell, that, is, that defeats the purpose of salvation. Salvation means absolutely nothing, if at the end of this, it's, it's hell first. Heaven is, is it, eternal state, new heavens, new earth, that's, that's, what we're headed for. It's what we want to endure to. Well, let's pray. And remember, in a couple weeks, next week is week 12, where we're going to talk about uh, how all of this impacts the way we think as a church and operations, the things we do, and why there's no altar call as an example. Um, then, and, and so evangelism and things like that. 
the next week I'm going to deal with some very important questions that, re that result from all of this. And in that, I'm going to shorten that lesson so that in that you can ask questions. So two weeks, start writing them down now. Just start thinking of them. No snarkiness, all right? All right, I will shut it down if there's snarkiness. But questions, we want to be able to answer those. That's what we're trying to do. Let's pray, and then we'll get out of here, or the children's building people are going to kill me. All right, Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for just a time to gather together as a church family and just learn and grow. And we're grateful uh, for this time and to, to just be able to do that. And so we are grateful for your word and what it teaches us and how consistent it proves itself to be time and again. We pray only that we might be able to grasp it, to apply it, and that it might give us hope. That we might look to the horizon and see the author and finisher of our faith, the author and perfecter of our faith, the one who brings about our sanctification and ultimate glorification. Having set your affection on us, have guaranteed us that you will persevere us to the end and keep us until the day of Christ. What a great thing that is and how happy that makes me to know that it doesn't rest only on my shoulders, uh, at all on my shoulders, that it is on yours. I pray that you would keep every single one of us in faith, that you would keep us, you would give us the gift of repentance, that you would give us the joy of knowing Christ. And for those of us who might be floundering, maybe, that you would help us to understand that you would open our eyes to see the gospel. That you would give us faith that it takes to believe. We pray these things in Jesus' name.